career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? Divorce is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. Kids are gone. Now what? I'll never find love. Why can't I be like the other guys? Hey guys, gay, straight, and everything in between. It's time to get a grip. Stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40 plus life. Let's get to the show with your Tell It Like It Is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick, unless you act like one first. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of 40 Plus Real Men Real Talk, where we talk about the things that guys are rarely talking about but need to. I'm Rick Clemens, your host, and as you guys know, every month we have our 40 Plus Men's Chat. The next one is coming up on July the 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific. So if you'd like to join that, just hop on over to rickclemens.com and look at the online chats, or you can go to 40 plus men's chats, or you can do 40 men, 40 plus men's chats.com. You can get to those as well. So let's dive in guys. Sorry, I'm a little tongue tied there, but today we're going to talk about something that's probably going to make some people uncomfortable. I'm going to be upfront and honest about it right out the gate. Something that I think a lot more guys have experienced than they choose to talk about. And I'm going to say I'm one of those people who actually uh, was a victim to this subject matter. And we're going to be talking about physical and sexual abuse as child when we were young boys and when this happened to us. And I have a guest today. His name is Brian Cardoza. And he has been a victim himself. He has come through it. He's done amazing stuff from documentaries to being interviewed on many podcasts and books and other things. He's also the founder of the Broken Knee Club, which I'm going to let him talk about. But this is all about raising awareness for men who find themselves in their darkest moments and realizing they can still find the light for each other. So I just want to get started in this conversation. It's such an important conversation. Brian, welcome to the podcast, man. Looking forward to us diving into this very difficult, but yet enlightening subject to help others walk through the shadows here. So thanks for being here, buddy. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, this is not a forum that we talk about a lot. So sometimes it's uh, it's hard to get uh, footing on for, to help yeah, other men. It is. It's really difficult. So I think I'll kind of quickly set the tone here. I already alluded to it that I was um, sexually abused as a child, but for me, it was more of a, okay, this is happening. It kind of explained some stuff to me why I felt the way that I did. And most of my listeners know I'm a gay man. Uh, but at that time, I didn't know I was a gay little boy. I just thought, oh, this is interesting. I'm really, I really like looking at men. And then when we're in showers and stuff, and for most guys, I'd say, yeah, that's just normal. You know, we're trying to figure stuff out until it happened. And then I'm like, oh, this makes even more sense for me. But a lot of times that's not the case for the things that happen. And I think that's where I'm going to kind of like let you start to tell your story and why this has led you to do the work that you've done, Brian. So it's the floor is yours, so to speak right now to kind of bring your perspective to physical and sexual abuse. All right. So um, I usually like to start off with a little bit of the background. Um, so when uh, my father left our family when I was six years old, my mother had a severe mental break, uh, and she literally, in the words she used, it's in my book, um, he left the family because you couldn't make him love it. And so I was directly blamed for him leaving. I have an older brother by four years, and she convinced my brother that the reason why his father left was because 
his brother was a failure. So uh, later on that summer, when my brother had an opportunity to uh, exact some revenge, he sold me to his best friend from the ages of six to the time I was nine, um, where I was, when we would go over his house, I was ceremoniously raped. Um, now, from six to uh, 12, I was also getting physically and emotionally, severely emotionally abused at home on a daily basis. Uh, at 12, I hit a very large growth spurt. Uh, I'm not a small man. Um, and at 12, I got, I got pretty big pretty quick. So the beating stopped, but then the um, mental abuse got ramped up. And by the time I was 15, I was homeless on the streets of Anchorage, Alaska, uh, where I stayed really until about 19. And then, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of follies and, you know, misdeeds from there. But that's a little bit of the background of what happened to me. Um, and the work that I do, the reason why I do it is because I'm a firm believer, Rick, that we won't stop sexual abuse in this country until we realize that it's a humanitarian issue and that it's not just a male issue. Um, there are news reports every day of women assaulting and sexually abusing young men, but those get mischaracterized as how lucky was he or I can't, you know, that you know, there was no way that she did this maliciously. You know what I mean? And so we need to acknowledge that this is a humanitarian issue. Mm -hmm. And until then we will stay in the dark. It is a humanitarian issue. And it is something that I, especially in the gay community is something that I find a tremendous amount of men have gone through. And we're not discounting by any stretch of the imagination here that women endure this too, because I think it's more prevalent yes. that we hear about the women, yeah. but it's also prevalent that this does occur with men and it is just not talked about. And then when you factor in for gay men, it seems to be even more common and it is often something that's uh, that then leads gay men to go, Oh, so is this yet another reason that I turn out gay, which I can tell you uh, from my own experience, this is not why I turned out gay. And we could debate that, but we're not going to, because I know you're not going to debate it. You're just going to kind of affirm what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we don't talk about enough is that as you alluded to, it's one in four girls by the time they're 18 will face sexual violence in this country, but it's also one in six men. And um, I've even heard from, uh, some people in the statistics world that, and this is this 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 ooh, this annoyed me to no end. Rick, um, I heard from one that said, if we included uh, prison rape, men would be raped at a higher number than women. And I've always been like, wait a minute, what do you mean if? Um, just because they're in prison doesn't mean it doesn't count as rape. And I guess that would be like saying if we included brunettes in breast cancer numbers, then more women would get breast cancer, you know, because like it just doesn't make sense. Um, the amount of sexual violence that is going on in this, in this world, uh, men and women, is just idiotic. It is just, honestly, it's just plain stupid. You know what I mean? Um, I have yet to meet very many sexual abuse survivors that have not also dealt with uh, drug and alcohol problems, uh, authoritative disorders, uh, uh, severe mental health disorders. Uh, one of my favorite sayings, Rick, is um, so from the ages of six to nine, uh, well, actually really from six to 15, um, if somebody touched me, they were trying to beat me or rape me. 
right? So I developed a very healthy core, uh, percentage of paranoia. And my favorite saying is, is, it's not paranoia if at one point in time in your life it was true. That becomes a coping mechanism. So, like, you know, we have, we have a host of mental health issues that we don't even talk about there. The, the addiction rate for sex abuse survivors is 68%. Mm-hmm. 68%. So if we stop sex abuse, imagine the amount of, uh, of, of drug incarnate, uh, a drug, um, uh, uh, drug charges we would stop in this country mm-hmm. from people self-medicating. Yeah. Imagine, you know, I mean, like one simple thing could solve so many issues, but we just, we have to stop raping. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. And not only do we need to stop that, but what we need to start doing is embracing sex and sexuality as a beautiful piece of who we are as human beings. From your lips to whoever's ears, Rick, from your lips to whoever's ears. It is, it is unfortunate, even in yep. this day and age, that we cannot, as a human humanity, and I, I hate to be generalizing right now, but yep. there's just a human need to continue to put sex and sexuality and gender identity into these horrible spaces that we don't want to talk about this stuff. Yeah, And, and yet and it's, it's such a key piece of who we are as a human being having a human experience. Well, and this, and that's the thing that blows my mind, Rick, and I say this all the time, is that every single person on this planet is here because of sex. Yes. And it is still the only topic that we don't talk about openly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so one of the things I, I, I try to tell people too is that when you talk about sex, right, so most people, their first realization is the, is, you know, it's not most, I'd say a lot of people, their first realization is that awkward talk about sex with their parents, right? Well, when we're young and we realize there's a certain amount of embarrassment talking about pluton- plutonic and mutually accepted sex between two loved ones, we pick up this vibe that we don't talk about sex. And that's the good stuff. You know, I don't think that a, a parent should be talking to their kid about their kinkiness. You know what I mean? Like, right. it, you know, the kid doesn't need to know that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But the kid does need to know that plutonic and mutually ex- and mutually and mutual loved affection is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And if the more they know that, that when something bad happens, they will report. We know the key to taking people off of the streets as predators is by reporting, yes. getting them off the streets. And the perpetrators use this ambiguity that we don't talk about sex as a way to us to get more people and i mean it's simple things talk about sex to your kids don't be embarrassed about it again you don't have to tell them that you like your hair pulled and be called daddy you know what i mean like right exactly you you can tell them and and go from there but that simple lesson could pull you know thousands of pedophiles off the street Mm -hmm. but what the, the stat i saw was that the average pedophile is stopped after his victims get into the three digits that's just that's i felt a pit in my stomach yes i felt a pit in my stomach as you said that that is and that tells you how many people young older teens our age and i in our 50s have are still carrying this stuff around and not saying anything and it's 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 something that has a huge impact 
in so many areas of a person's life, their self-confidence, their self-worth, their ability to have good relationships, their ability to function on a daily basis. It's, it's that thing that drives you into that space of, did I do something wrong? When in reality, you didn't. And, and that's the thing is that we also need to, on top of all this conversation, Rick, we also need to talk about legitimizing and destignifying therapy, right? I mean, like we need, we need, we know this for a fact in the mental health field. The sooner into therapy, the sooner into recovery. Mm-hmm. Just a fact. So if we could actually get people to come forward, speak about this, and then seek clinical professional help versus drugs, alcohol, sexual addictions, um, and all these other things, we would improve this nation, I don't know by how many fold. I mean, it's not even, it's unmeasurable how we could improve this world. And it's interesting that when we start to dive into this and we go into the space of what does reporting look like, it is, and this is, probably going to not set well with some people the way that I say this, but when did we teach anybody how to report this stuff? When did we, you know, when have we taught anybody how to talk about sex? When have we taught anybody how to talk about I'm gay? When have we taught anybody how to talk about I've been raped or I've been touched inappropriately? We say, don't let people do this to you. And I know, again, folks, I'm generalizing here, but I don't think we spend the right amount of time helping individuals, humanity, be able to comfortably come forward and say, this happened and this isn't right. We shame it into space. Yeah. So one of the things that I I do, I'm a a state certified peer support specialist. Yep. And so I work with, I work with a lot of drug addiction and stuff like that. I work with a lot of suicidal behavior, isolation stuff. And one of the things that I do, which for some of my contemporaries, they hate, but the people I work with love. So I work with drug addiction and I also have, when we're working with drug addiction, we also work on a relapse plan. So what happens when you relapse? And atypically, everybody's like, oh, I won't, I won't do this. I won't do that. I'm like, okay, well, but relapse is part of recovery. So let's have a plan so that when you do relapse, you just, you just like, oh, this is all part of it. I just move forward. And invariably, these people succeed because they will have a relapse. They know they're going to have a relapse, but they have a plan for when they do. Not I'm a failure, not I'm worthless, nothing like that. I look at what you just said the very same way. All right, so we say don't touch, you know, let people touch you here. And then we just stop the conversation. But what happens if they do? Where is what step? What is the next step for you to do? Mm-hmm. So when that bullshit happens, sorry, I don't know if you want cussing. No, on that, it. I'm, um, but when that bullshit happens, what is the next step? Yes. What is the next thing for you to do? If that doesn't happen, what is the next step after that? I was at Wyndham Mercy in Philadelphia speaking to the campus, and uh, one of those questions on the panel was what if you report it and nobody does anything about it? Right. And, um, and I was like, you keep reporting. Mm-hmm. Like you keep going until somebody pays attention. Mm-hmm. Um, because their first thought was, and this is something that a lot of survivors, I don't know if you've encountered this yourself, 
But a lot of survivors have a thing called recency bias, mm -hmm. where if the first time that we have disclosed what happened to us and it is handled terribly, we won't talk about that shit for another 20 years. We, because the most recent time we did, it was terrible. Yep. We have found that if someone reports to you and you handle it properly, they become open. They, they have better discourse. They have, they're more open about discussing these things and about healing. So, you know, that doesn't mean because it happened once that you should handle it terribly. And I understand that because uh, the first time I disclosed, I was 16 or 17 mm -hmm. and it was terrible. And I yep. did not speak another word until I was 34. Um, so, you know, the reason why I say keep reporting is because you have to get rid of that recency bias. You just have to realize the person you talk to is an asshole and just move on. And I think it's important to realize because of how all of this stuff, whether it's rape in the traditional sense between heterosexuals or rape in the traditional sense of between, you know, two of the same adults. sex. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it might be. Yep. This is all the stuff that we're talking generation after generation after generation has been swept under the rug. And yes, it is fucking scary to come out. I remember the very first time that I talked about this after I came out of the closet was probably 15 years or so. Maybe not quite that 13 years. And I happened to be speaking in a sexuality class on a college campus. And I don't know why at that moment, it just felt like the right time to bring it up. I mean, I'd talked to family and friends about this, right? Okay. But never in the public sphere. And it came out of my mouth and I'm a pretty verbose guy. I can talk and I can keep moving and I can take the heckles or whatever that might come up in any situation. And I remember my body starting to shake because I oh, was God. almost like, what the fuck did I just do? Everything's been good. You know, everything's been good. I'm okay. Yes. I'm the gay guy who came out late in life. I screwed around, hooked up with guys all through my marriage. Okay. That makes me the asshole. I totally get it. I'd learned to endure that. But suddenly yeah. I just said I was sexually abused as a child to a whole room full of strangers. A lot of strangers. Yeah. I've done that too. It's a little it's unnerving. And then, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. I realized that was part of the healing yep. and that was part of again and not that this is about me and i know this isn't about you yep. but it's part of the giving permission and yes. giving strength and showing someone else the way to yep. step forward and i will never forget as i finished that talk i was standing speaking with the professor and we're, we were friends so it wasn't uncommon for us after the you know thing yeah. ended to have a chat. Yep. Yep. and I walked out of the room and headed down the hallway and it was second floor and I went outside to the stairs and was walking down and suddenly this kid walked up to me this guy walked up and he said hey can I talk to you and and typically I'm like yeah I get you know I'll get yeah. kids approach me all the time like hey I'm gay or I have this friend and I'd really like to help you know and yeah and he you said, just, I, you got code for you're about to hear some shit Right, right. I knew I knew what it was going to, you know. Yeah, yep, yep. And then he said, I just have to tell you, I have been sexually abused. And I don't know what to do. And I remember standing there realizing this is now my responsibility. Yep. This is my responsibility to help this kid in the best way possible. Yep. 
I, and uh, I quickly oh. asked him if he felt comfortable sharing this with his professor because she could help us the best way on this college campus yep. to get him hooked up to some counseling. And I said, I want to, I don't really want to go too deep in the details because I want you to get the help you need. And I said, but I also am more than willing to listen here. And it was, again, one of those moments where I realized how much what I do is my responsibility to help those who come and say, I need this help. And it also scared the crap out of me. Yeah. One of, one of the things I always, so on a regular basis, I'll have somebody come up to me and just be like, Hey, how do I do what you do? And, you know, like mm -hmm. male, male and female, and they'll, right. you know, they'll, they'll want to know. Um, you know, my journey and how I got to where I'm at and all this kind of stuff. And the one thing, especially with sex abuse, um, I always, I always warn people this is that the minute you tell your story, you give permission to other people to tell you. So you have to make sure that you're in a healthy enough spot um, to where you can handle that conversation because mm -hmm. As hard as it is to disclose the first time, and it does get easier every time thereafter, hearing the stories after a speech, to me, and I don't know how you feel about this, Rick, but like I was at, when I was at a college, I gave a speech. Um, we talked, I, you know, I, 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 always, I always set aside time for anybody who wants to talk to me afterwards. Yep, yep. And there has not been a time where somebody hasn't come up to me and told me their story. And I just want to be like, hey, so um, what was that guy's name? Um, where, where does he live? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What time is he around? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, right, right. I want to go to this person and just be like, no, I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? Right. And you have, to, you have to realize that you can't do that. Right. You have to realize that this is their journey, that, that this is, if you do that, you're taking their power. You have to realize all these things and there's a certain level of recovery you have to be in to have those kinds of conversations. Um, and so I always, I always warn people a little bit about, you know, so talking out about sex abuse because you have to be at that level. I mean, mm -hmm. because if you're not, you won't make it 30 minutes because right. you'll hear some stories and yep. you're just like, no, I can't do this. I can't, I can't hear these. You know what I mean? And it, and it is it's such a prevalent thing, especially in the LGBTQ community that I have learned that if I, you know, that first incident was the first one, but he, you know, at this stage, I don't even have to bring it up in many of the times that I've talked, it kind of shows up and I know here's my protocol. As soon as it shows up, I, I engage the event planner who, whoever that may be, because I know I'm going to walk away and I'm kind of like, I'm moving on to the next thing, but I don't want to be that back that turns on someone at that moment. Yep. So I immediately engage whoever I can, whether it's a professor or the event planner, and I see if we can't have a huddle and recommend that we immediately get somebody of, you know, some status on campus or wherever I might be involved. If necessary, if it's something recent, which sometimes yep, it, it can be, obviously we will definitely encourage let's get some formal police statements and stuff involved as well as do you have a current counselor do not do you have a current therapist if not you know then we need to you know and there's kind of this little checklist i have in my head of here's where we're going simply because i do not want to leave that person hanging there in the moment going yeah. here's yet and back to your if i don't have the good experience i'm going to shut the fuck up and i'm not going to talk about this ever again well, so one of the things that um, I do that I, that is 
that I put in. So I, I, <laughs> I guess it's a writer for contracts with me for speaking. Mm -hmm. um, but in my writer, there is, um, they need to have somebody there from the, from the local crisis center or counseling center. Mm -hmm. um, and I make sure that that's, those are in the room mm -hmm. and that they're announced at the beginning of every, before they even yep. uh, introduce me. Uh, that way, because a lot of crisis centers, they do stuff for free. So it, it's really helpful for students. Uh, they usually do have on-campus uh, counselors. Um, and they will come left and right. If you're going to speak out, you know, one of my speeches was to 400 students. Um, they had three different crisis centers for domestic violence, sex abuse, and drug addiction. And they had the entire counseling department there. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. because they knew what they were going to hear could be rough. So I, I don't know if, if you want to start doing that in your writer for your speaking, yeah. your speaking, but I know it's come in handy many a time. So real quick here before we wrap up, I want to kind of address kind of the elephant in the room. So what if you are a guy over 40 and this is hanging out in your head and you know you want to do something, but you know you're scared to death to do it? What's some advice you would give somebody like that? When you say do something, you mean actually get into recovery? Well, either recovery or at least even just open up about it for that very first time. I know that's a big question because I have a perspective too, but. Well, so I'm going to go under the guise that they are seeking help. Mm -hmm. um, and they're afraid of the help because a lot of guys are really afraid of the therapist room for some reason. Um, they have this stigma about it. And I think it's just, it's kind of sad because. The way I, the analogy I always put it, Rick, is so I'm 46 years old. Um, I still bench press over 500 pounds. Um, and the reason why I did that is because when I was younger, I was weaker. So I went to the gym and got stronger. And that's exactly how it is for therapy. I'm weaker in a subject, so I go to the gym, which is my therapist. Yep. Um, and I get stronger. But I think the number one advice I always like to tell people is – it's worth it. Um, there are going to be days that it's going to suck. There are going to be days when you walk out of the therapist's office and you want to go straight to the bar or you want to go back, you want to go straight to mother's little helper, whatever that is. Right. And there are going to be days when you don't want to get out of bed. There are going to be days when you feel more raw than when you started. Um, but if you get up and go, it's going to be worth it. Yes. Um, you know, I, I guess the other thing I always say too, is that, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, Rick, does not have to be a train. Mm. Um, and the sooner we realize that, that we can get on a path of recovery, the better, uh, you know, and you owe it to yourself because you deserve to be happy. So real quick, tell us a little bit about the broken knee club and survivor nights, because I think those are two things yeah. that are very important to talk about. So Broken Knee Club is actually going to be starting to get phased out because Survivor Nights is taking a really big threshold. And it's really taken a lot. And uh, Survivor Nights is a – well, Broken Knee Club was um, – we all walk with pain. It was talking about – it was started um, when I had my fifth knee surgery. Um, and it was talks about what, what we can do to help other people's survivors and stuff like that. And I'm going to phase that one out. I'm going to go hardcore with Survivor Nights because – that's my art group and we get in, we're getting art shows all across the nation, even into Canada. Hmm. Um, and what we do is we focus in on art, art and trauma in a large umbrella. 
um, because what we have found that if we showcase artists that have survived cancer and you know HIV diagnoses and domestic violence and severe car wrecks and all this kind of stuff, and then we throw in sex abuse, mm-hmm. you start to realize that people realize there are other ways to heal. So um, my favorite thing, I, I turned this into one of those memes, and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm a meme now. Um, it's very important for us to hear stories that are very similar to ours. Uh, because it shows us we can heal, but it's also, I think, far more important to hear stories that we don't recognize because it teaches us there are different ways to heal. So when I hear from a cancer diagnosis survivor or a cancer survivor, and they start talking about the trauma of that diagnosis, and I realize that the five or six things that they're saying are very similar to the realization is that I'm a sex trafficking survivor, I start to ask questions about how they healed from those because how they heal from them may be different. And I still get the, I still get to heal from the same thing. Mm-hmm. So what we've done with survivor nights is we do uh, art shows. We'll have spoken word. We'll have music. We'll have just 2d, 3d art, whatever the, the artist wants to put in. And we don't put anything up about like, this is a cancer survivor. or This is this survivor. We just put them on the wall. And you would be amazed at how people will see a sex abuse survivor right next to a cancer survivor and they get both pictures, right? You know what I mean? Like, and so um, we've been doing that a lot and that one's actually going pretty well. And I, you know, and we're trying to um, even get into high schools to where, where we can start teaching art um, trauma art so that we can increase the emotional intelligence of people. Uh, so, you know, survivor nights is getting to be a pretty big thing. Uh, and, uh, I, I try to let the proceeds of my book help fund that. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing, being honest, being brutally honest, and also sharing your insight and wisdoms, because I do believe, and I know you do, cause we've already chatted through this, not only live here, but also prior to this, that this is much more prevalent in our world than most men ever want to talk about. Oh yeah. And, And once again, this is something that 40 plus real men, real talk is all about, which is talking about stuff that guys truly, truly do not want to talk about. So um, thanks again for being here, Brian. I truly enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to sharing. And I don't know if you can share that um, on Amazon, the unexpected victim. uh, Absolutely, man. You know, so uh, that would help uh, support uh, Survivor Nights. And also, it's also really good to hear other men's stories. Yes, absolutely, man. Well, totally appreciate you, bro. Thanks, sir. That's a wrap for 40 Plus. Real men, real talk. Where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves, and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 Plus Real Men, Real Talk, where the conversations continue.